suggested last time that uh, depending how you would quantify such a thing we could well describe this as the most effective message in the entire scriptures um, certainly in the sense that where else do we find a message being proclaimed and 100% favourable response to that message 100% of those who hear it actually believing it and responding aright to it um, it's unique in scripture in this way uh, so it would certainly pay us to spend a little time this evening uh, looking at the actual content of this message and I want us to start at the start of verse 5 with a change of belief I wonder what you pick out as the key event in this narration that produces the, the wonderful end result of it well you could say um, the sackcloth the, this sign of mourning this sign of the genuineness of their brokenness of their hearts that's got to be key to it and certainly it has maybe verse 8 their prayer everyone called urgently on God or the fact verse 8 that they turn from their evil desires towards the living God of course all of these things are absolutely central to, to what happens but can I suggest to you that the, the, the primary key the, 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 the thing that sets it all off is right there at the start of verse 5 the Ninevites believed God why does a person sin? Well the answer to that is obvious it's because we're sinners we aren't sinners because we sin we sin because we're sinners our nature is that of a sinner and as a sinner we sin but if we ask another question why don't people worry about their sin? Why is it that people are just happy to sin and indifferent to their sin? Surely the answer comes back here they don't believe God they don't believe that God has spoken and if they do they don't believe that God would do what he said he would do for if they did they would have a totally different attitude surely towards their sin now I don't in saying that mean that they don't believe in God I, I believe that at root every person believes in God I think it's impossible for a human being not to believe in God Romans 1 verse 20 says for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse for although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened although they claimed to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles it's not that they don't believe in God it's that they refuse to believe the evidence as to what God is like and what God's word declares God will do that's the very heart of Psalm 14 verse 1 isn't it the, the fool has said in his heart there is no God it's not that he doesn't believe there is a God he, he knows there's a God but he's determined that the sense of the word there is that he's determined to live his life as though God is of no account to him as though God either is not interested in him or if he is will certainly not judge him it's what uh, Stephen Charnock in his Existence and Attributes of God refers to as practical atheism it's having that mindset that says it's as though God doesn't exist I know he does but I will live my life without any reference to him at all or as the ESV Study Bible comments on it it expresses not the philosophical atheism but the idea that if he exists he takes no account in human affairs and will not call people to account for their deeds and that's at the heart of human reasoning isn't it if God does exist then he will not judge me 
He will not call me to account. He will not carry out the punishment that he said. And that was exactly the mindset of the Ninevites. Until we get to verse 5. And the key to it all changing is this. Suddenly they believed God. I find this very verse very interesting, not just for what it says, but for what it doesn't say, because, of course, these aren't Jews. What do they know about God? They don't know Jehovah God. They haven't got the temple. They haven't got the prophets. They haven't got the scriptures. They've got their own gods. They've got their own religions. But when they hear the word of truth, it strikes home to their hearts as truth. And when they hear what Jonah says, there is something so convicting and something so real about it and something so powerful about it that as the Spirit applies it to their minds and their conscience are quickened by it, they realise that this is the truth and the God of which it speaks will do what he said he will do. Now friends, I suggest that should really shape our approach to sharing the Gospel in the world, shouldn't it? Of course, if we're talking to people who don't know God, we need to talk to them about who God is Uh, We need to talk to them about their accountability to God. We need to make it clear that God has made them and he's got ownership rights over them and so on. I'm not belittling that for one second. But please don't ever think that the fact that they don't know this God will prevent them being convicted that what God says is true. It won't. God's spirit is, is to bring that conviction. God's spirit is to bring them, although they do not know God, to recognise the truth of what God says. That's key to them coming to know him. Their ignorance of God will not be a barrier to them coming to believe that what God says is true if we are faithful in what we say to them. Or if I put it around the other way, if we convince ourselves that we're wasting our time talking to certain groups of people or certain types of people or certain individual people, we are wrong. There is exactly the same miracle needed in their heart as in anybody else's heart for them to be saved. (coughs) My friend, if you ever conclude that any one person is beyond being saved, you really have gone wrong. Just think who is included here in verse 5 in the all of them from the greatest to the least. Well, certainly the king's included. We have reference to him later on. But it also includes the army generals. It includes the civilians. It includes the city prostitutes, it includes the pub owners, it includes the drunkards, it includes everyone from the greatest to the least. And every one of those is convicted by this message and every one of them when they hear it is convinced that this is God speaking through this message and what God says in this message is true. And they believe God. My friend, have you ever decided that certain groups of people are beyond being saved? Maybe as you look at the map of the world and you hear what's happening in some distant land and you say there's there's no hope for that people. They're so far gone in their paganism or their idolatry or their rebellion against God or their materialism or whatever it might be. You just look at them and say God just can't save those. And you don't even bother to pray for them let alone support mission work in amongst them. I mean, think of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint and the others. I think I was the name short when we were talking about it before the service and I, was, I think I'm one lacking so I'll stop there and not put my foot in it. But do you remember when they went out to the Orca Indians? 
You know, and, and the world could look at that and say, what a futile gesture. Fancy trying to take the gospel to people who would as soon kill you as listen to you. And, and surely the, that was proved in the fact that they never did manage to share the gospel with them. They were, they were martyred there on the, the beach, as far as we know, having landed there to share the gospel with those people. What a futile waste of time. How can it be? When you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know him, how can that ever be waste of time? How can that ever be futile? And the proof of that, of course, was in the, the work that their wives and their children took up after them, wasn't it? And the, and the great work that's been done amongst that people. Why is it not a waste of time? Because there's got to be Orca Indians in heaven. Or God's a liar. There's got to be people from every tribe and people and language and nation upon earth. That's the glory of heaven. And if we once in our minds start saying, well, God's never going to be able to touch that people or they're beyond being saved, we're claiming that heaven will not be heaven. We're saying that it will be incomplete because some people won't be represented there and God says they will. So how can it ever be a waste of time speaking to them? You know, I I sort of feel that perhaps we ought to almost take that first sentence of verse 5 and put it up as a text, you know, maybe across the church or across our desks or whatever it might be. The Ninevites believed God. And, And we're going out into Nineveh effectively, aren't we? Every day we go into our workplace, we go into the towns, we go into whatever situation it might be. That's Nineveh. But my friends, they can believe in God just as you or I have. The barrier is the same. It's no greater, it's no less. When you come across tomorrow someone who is, who is totally incapable even of understanding what you're saying and the depth of their drink and, and their lifestyle is, is, is totally abhorrent to the teaching of Scripture, they stand in no more a difficult position of being saved than the most upright citizen of this land. They both stand in the same state. They're in their sin and unless the Holy Spirit works to convict them of that, unless the Holy Spirit takes away the blinding of Satan from their eyes, unless they hear the word of truth, they will not be saved. And if we share the word of truth and the Holy Spirit does his work in their minds and their hearts, they will be saved. It's that simple. It's that black and white, isn't it? And sadly we make it so difficult and so complicated. The Ninevites believed God. Can I ask you, is it possible that there's someone you've ruled out in your own associations and connections and conversations? There's someone who you've already decided in your own mind they they just won't be saved. Maybe they're so hostile, maybe you've tried so many times, maybe you've prayed about them and pleaded with them and you just come to that point of, of, of really belief that they're not going to be saved and that's the end of it and I'll leave it there. Remember the words of um, John Newton when he was talking with it to a colleague about a mutual friend and the, the colleague was saying how he despaired of him and John Newton said, since the Lord saved me I've learned not to despair of anyone. That's, that's where we should be, isn't it? You know, whoever that person is, if we share the truth with them and if we pray for them and if God the Holy Spirit works in their heart and mind, they will believe God. As soon as that blinding is taken away, they will see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's all that's got to happen. Once they see it, they will want it. Because it will be altogether beautiful to them. Is there someone where you work, someone in your home? A friend or a neighbour? Is there someone who who you've sort of just got to that point of saying, 
no more. I've said it and, and that's enough. Can I encourage you? They can believe God. They can believe God. When God by his Holy Spirit works on their mind and heart, they will believe God. A change of belief, there's also a change of behaviour. If believing God is the key to it all, there's got to be a change of behaviour to accompany that, hasn't there? It's not just enough that intellectually we believe what God says. That's the start, but it's certainly not the end. But I would suggest to you that once someone does truly believe what God says, then it is inevitable that their response towards God will change. If you really believe that you stand under God's judgement, if you really believe that hell awaits you, if you really believe that you've got just this brief lifetime to come into a right relationship with God, you're going to be driven to do something about it, aren't you? It's unbelief that's the great barrier. And we looked last time at the message that Jonah brought. Brought. Repent because God is going to destroy you. And that's the message that we've got basically for this world, isn't it? Repent of your sin for the wrath of God hangs over you. And that message brings with it by the Spirit's power conviction of truth. So what is their response? What changes in them when they believe God about this? Well, let's start in verse 5. Fasting and the wearing of sackcloth. I don't know when you last wore sackcloth. I looked in the wardrobe this morning I couldn't find mine but it's not a, a thing that we do in our day and culture, is it? But in their day and culture, it was exactly what you did. It was an expression, an outward expression of internal mourning. But it was a demonstration of how real their mourning was. They weren't just paying lip service. They weren't just saying, well, this is terrible. I've sinned. I shouldn't have sinned. I'm sorry I sinned. It, it was driving them to a state where they wanted to express externally the, the deep grief that existed within them over their sin. And so they gave up the comfort and the a niceness of their everyday clothing for the most uncomfortable, most irritating clothing that they had. And I guess, as far as we can tell from this, they wore it for 40 days. And I imagine that your skin reacted to it within a day or so. That was a measure of how real their heart conviction at this message was. And not only did they wear sackcloth, but they fasted. Now I don't know if that's in response to the king's edict when we get down to verse 7 we read that the king um, issued this decree saying let uh, no man or beast, herd or flock taste anything do not let them eat or drink but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth Uh, that was certainly his instruction and whether it's in response to that it's not really clear whether he's looking ahead in verse 5 to that Um, it certainly says in verse 5 that um, they declared a fast it was a, a wide thing, it wasn't just individually, it was collectively they decided to do this, or whether they spontaneously did that and the king then affirmed it in writing, either way the end result is that across that entire city they gave up the pleasures of food and drink during the daytime I guess it was probably just daytime fasting and they gave up the comfort of their normal clothes to express to the Lord their heartfelt grief over the reality of their sins as they now understood them. Even verse 6, to the degree that the king took off his robes and wore sackcloth and sat in the ashes or the dust. Isn't that an amazing picture? If we ever despair of Britain, can I suggest we just go back to that picture? That's what God can do. 
Isn't it amazing? That he can bring a city to that state of unanimous agreement that they are wrong before a holy God and, and work that degree of repentance and that degree of mourning in, in a people to even the king. Do you pray for our queen? Do you pray for your president? Or do we somehow see those so high up as being beyond the effectiveness of our involvement and our shaping them? We might not have the opportunity to go and have an audience with them and I'm not not sure that uh, Jonah did but the news of it reached him and it affected him to the degree the same as anybody else. And scripture tells us to pray for those in authority over us, doesn't it? And this is certainly not the only time in world history where a king has called on a a nation, let alone a city, to to turn to the Lord and cry out to the Lord for help in times of national disaster. And never is that more necessary than over sin. Can you imagine what it would be like to hear that in our day and age if the Queen came on television tomorrow to ask this country to, to cry out to God for forgiveness for our sin. Oh, that uh, we would seek such revival in our land again as we've enjoyed in times past. Not just that, there is true conviction over their sin, there's true uh, tears and mourning over their sin, but there's a real change in their lives. They turn away from it. Uh, Look at um, verse 8. I think it is. What do we read there? Um, Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. You say, well isn't it enough just to be convicted that what you've done is wrong? No, we've got to give it up. There's got to be a, a decision made, there's got to be a determination made that I will not continue in that way. Not in our own strength, for we can't do it, but in God's strength. There's got to be such a, a, a repugnance and a horror of how we used to live that nothing will cause us to want to live like that again. And that's what the king called on them to do. Not just to be sorry for what they've done wrong, but to stop doing it and to move away from it. One of the uh, wonderful things that uh, you read of, certainly if you read of in the Welsh Revival when God so powerfully... Uh, worked in Wales uh, the, the, the transformation in the society, in the community especially in the mining areas where these miners were such hardened and bitten um, rough living men and many of them took it out on their families and their wives at home, their, their life was working down in the mines in the day, getting drunk in the pubs in the evening and going home and taking it out on their families and, and how it was just transformed overnight when the, the work of the spirit hit that, that country and uh, I know a Welsh brother who told me of one town and I don't know which one it was I can't remember the name but where the boast of this town had been that you could not stand on a street corner and not see at least one pub that was sort of the boast of the town is what it was known for and in two years every one of those pubs closed because suddenly the men's hearts were filled with not with a desire to get drunk but with a desire to worship God and to, to build up their homes and, and work for their families and, and do good in the home. And that's what you expect to see, isn't it? When true repentance comes, it's not just being sorry for something, it's not just asking God to forgive you for something, but it's determining to change. (coughs) 
and the king calls on them to turn away from their evil deeds and to turn towards God. Did you see that? Verse 8. Let everyone call urgently on God. And that's where the humanist and the Christian totally differ, isn't it? The humanist will say, oh yes, we should give up our evil ways. Yes, we should work for the good of society. Yes, we should be good citizens. But the Christian says that's not enough. It's not just enough to stop doing wrong now, but something's got to be done about the wrong that you've already done. And something's got to be done about the wrong that you'll still do, however inadvertently. And that needs God. There is only forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Yes, you can live a morally, quotes, good life in the sense that you can be a model citizen and you can pay your taxes and you can be a good father and a a good wife and society can look at you and say, yes, you're a, a model person without Christ. I'm not denying that. But you can't be spiritually right without Christ and the sin that you've committed can't be dealt with without Christ. And you can't move from under the wrath of God without Christ. And the king tells them to call on the name of the Lord. My friends, have you done that? Is it possible there's someone here tonight who's trying to live the Christian life without the Lord? You can't do it. You know, maybe as you've lived with Christians, maybe as you've moved with Christians, you've become aware that your life isn't right. And, and rightly, you've discerned that, and rightly you you don't want it to be like that anymore and you're trying to make New Year's resolutions and good resolutions and trying to sort your life out and try to make yourself into the person that you believe you should be but somehow in your own strength. You can't do that. You can go so far at an external level but you can't change your heart and you can't do anything to pay for the wrong that you've done. Only Jesus Christ can do that. My friend, have you cried out urgently to the Lord that's where it starts isn't it that is what God hears here in this account that is what God responds to the, the, the fact that they've been convicted of their sin the fact that, they've, that, that they're mournful about it the fact that they're turning away from their evil and most especially the fact that they're crying out to him for mercy and they've got no promise that God's going to do anything for them What does the king say there? Um, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. All they've got is a a hope. All that they've got is is some uncertain knowledge about God that maybe if, if we're really genuine in this and we really cry out to him, he might yet have compassion on us. And we've got so much more. My friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this evening, and you're not right before him, do you know that God has promised that if you cry out to him, he will forgive you? There's no he may do it, there's no perhaps I'll be alright on judgment day, you will be right on judgment day. If you truly repent of your sin and come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that an amazing promise? No conditions attached to it. God doesn't say, well, I'll put you on probation. I'll I'll see how it goes for a year. You know, I'm prepared to give you another chance and we'll see how we get along. How about that? He doesn't say, well, provided you then go and do this and that, then I will save you. 
or provided you don't let me down or, or, or provided anything it simply says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved whoever comes in the way that God has prescribed with a repentant spirit recognising that before a holy God they are a sinner that in thought and deed time and again they have dishonoured God they've gone against what he says they've broken his laws they thought little of him they haven't worshipped him they haven't magnified him they haven't sought his will and his purpose in their life and you've simply come to God pleading the merit of Jesus Christ saying Lord for Christ's sake would you just take my life would you just take it and use it as you see fit I, I just bring it before you Father please forgive me for Christ's sake whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved period isn't that amazing and the Ninevites didn't have that promise not to know it and yet they still came to the Lord and discovered the joy of a God who has compassion on them so see finally in verse 10 a change of outcome when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened that's NIV if I read it from ESV um, it reads like this when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it if you read it uh, from King James or New King James or RSV you'll get different wording again and I guess there's two questions immediately jump at us out of that verse the first one would be this because if you read it in King James Version or RSV it says God repented of the evil so I guess the first question we've got to answer is this can God do evil? was it that God was going to do something evil to them and then decided not to do it? well of course the answer is no God can't do evil the word translated evil there is, 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 is something um, hard something judgmental some, something that God brings against them something that they would receive as being uh, something they don't want uh, it's, it's like with uh, Dave, uh, David and Saul isn't it and, and an evil spirit came out from the Lord or an injurious spirit came out from the Lord God worked for him to do something that, that would be painful and something that uh, wouldn't be pleasant God does not do evil the word translated there literally means God sighed or, or God breathed strongly it's an expression of God's response to their change of heart it's as though God said I'm going to bring destruction on them and then as they change their attitude and they believe what he said and they turn to him and cry out to him it's as though God just sighs and says now I won't bring on them what I've said I will bring second question then I guess must be this so did God then change his mind is it the fact that God was going to do something and he promised he would do it and then changed his mind and decided that he wasn't going to do what he promised he was going to do therefore really lies well of course again the answer has got to be no God cannot lie there's no shadow of turning with God God remains steadfast in what he's promised and, and in his nature and, and who he is so what's changed here well it's not God is it it's the Ninevites 
The whole point is what God says to them is because of the way you are I must destroy you and if they don't change who they are then destruction will surely come. But by God's grace and God's work they do change. And so when they change the situation is entirely different. Now God will be bringing judgment on those who have come to him for, a, for his mercy. And instead God is able to have compassion on them. And God is able to spare them. Just as God says today, the wages of sin is death. There is none righteous, no not one that is appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. And God promises that and God says that and that is the way it is unless you change. But come to him in repentance. Come to him in faith. Put your hope in the merit of Christ. And it changes. God doesn't change his mind, God doesn't change the rules, God doesn't change what he's doing, but your situation with him has changed and therefore the way he deals with you changes. And he forgives you for Christ's sake. And that judgment that will end in eternal damnation becomes a judgment that will end in great reward. Oh my friend, have you come to where these Ninevites came? That's got to be the first question, hasn't it? Are you sure, however many years you've been sitting in this church, whether you've been through Sunday school, youth work, whether you've taught in it, whether you're a church member, whatever your background, are you sure that you've come before this holy God and you've got down on your knees and you've wept over your sin? to such a degree that you'd have put on sackcloth and, and ashes and fasted to, to, to show this God how genuinely, how, how real you are about grieving over the horror of how you are as a person and what you've done. H have you believed God that what he said will happen if you don't do that will happen? Have you turned away from that old life? and instead cried out to this God that he would have mercy on you. My friend, if you haven't done that, there is nothing more urgent than that in this world. All your agendas, all your priorities, all the things that you're thinking of already that have happened this week and next year and in the rest of your life, none of them amount to anything compared to this. Have you done that? And then are we taking that same message out to the world with the expectation that we should, given that God can take that and cause people to believe in him by it and cause them to come in repentance and cause them to come in faith and cause them to cry out to the living God that he might have compassion on them too. Jonah ends up getting angry about this. Isn't that tragic? Our hearts should thrill at what God can do when we are faithful to him and simply stand up and tell it as it is and pray that his spirit will take those words, simple though they be, and bring them with conviction to the hearts of those with whom we speak.